Welcome to the Making Connections News edition of Mountain Talk. Making Connections News stories focus on opportunities and challenges for building a thriving economy and healthy communities in the Appalachian coal fields. This edition is hosted by Sydney Bowles, reporter for the Ohio Valley Resource and WMMT. Today we're bringing you a conversation with the farmers behind Pollinator Produce Partners in Virginia. We talk about human-scale agriculture, preserving extinct varieties of plants, and farming in the age of climate change. Hi, I'm Becca. I'm Joe. We run Pollinator Produce Partners. It's a farm in Duffield, Virginia. This is one of the extinct plants I'm growing. Uh, I think this one's just for fun for now. Wait, that's an extinct plant? This one's extinct in the wild. But Uh, like, what is it? uh, Gosh, who are you? This is a Eustephia or a Phaedronassa or a Bacella. It's some sort of South American Amaryllis relative. And um, they're from the Andes. Um, And if you give them a dry enough uh, pot of soil to grow in, they actually really like the climate here, how it's been the last couple years. Hmm. Um, Her name sounds like some sort of like Greek goddess. Oh yeah, I don't know the um, I don't know the origin of it, but a lot of them are Latin names. Of yeah, I guess that old, is Latin, huh? Uh, Tell about what you mean when you say you're growing extinct plants. Um, sure. So um, there's a lot of plants that haven't been seen in the wild for you know anywhere between decades and centuries. Um, I think over here I've got. Um, my little uh, startup plant nursery, and in one of these smaller pots, I've got a plant called Franklinia, um, which was named after the botanist's friend Benjamin Franklin, and never seen again. But when he saw it, he thought it was, you know, worth growing, and so he started growing some for himself and sent some to botanic gardens, and um, so they still exist, luckily. Um, so, like, what is it, I mean, like, that's really freaking cool, but why does it, what does it matter, do you think, to, to preserve these, these plants that aren't growing in the wild? Um, I mean, I think whether they're plants or animals or uh, bacteria or fungi, any, anything that's sort of uh, imperiled is biodiversity that's, that's worth saving. Um, you know, we don't know if there's uh, things that could lead to new medicine or um, that, you know, have important biological, ecological functions that we don't realize. Um, But also, I mean, I I just think that they're inherently um, useful. And I mean, these are, I grow a lot of these because they're they're beautiful plants um, that, you know, can, can sort of like finance their own conservation if I'm like selling them to people or whatever. Um, but, you know, even the, even the ugly ones are worth saving. I mean, that's kind of, like, honestly, I feel really silly that this is something that I really hadn't thought about until I started talking to you guys about this. And, like, that's on me for not having had these thoughts on my own until the ripe old age of 26. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like, I don't know, like, I go to the grocery store and there's, like, tomatoes and cucumbers and, like, a couple kinds of lettuce. But the reality is... The, like plant life is so much more diverse than that and so I guess like you think a lot about why that might be 
And I don't know, like, what's your sort of, like, 10,000-foot view of, of how we got to this point in terms of, like, having the 10 or 15 main plants that we grow? Um, well, a, a lot of it is sort of what, what scales up well for industrial agriculture and the sort of, you know, uh, very herbicide-driven um, agriculture that's happening these days. Um, one, one thing that I'm really excited about is there's a whole slew of perennial vegetables, things that you don't have to plant each year. Um, they just sort of persist from year to year in the ground. So you don't have to till that soil. So you're not losing soil health as you go. Um, and, and you're also not having to like buy new seed stock every year. You're not having to, I mean, there's, there's just all sorts of advantages to it. And I think part of why we're not doing more of that is, you know, aside from rhubarb and asparagus, there's not a whole lot of things that, that other people are really familiar with. And I think we're, that I'm, I'm maybe not brave enough to take the leap yet. What do you mean? Um, I, if I showed up with, um, Chinese artichokes, which are these sort of, um, warty little, um, uh, <laughs> roots. <laughs> a warty little leaf root? Uh, a warty little mint root. Um, <laughs> I'm not like, sure. Like, maybe people wouldn't know how to use that. Maybe they'd be put off by it. Um, that was our know, whole first year at market <laughs> was bringing those things and then being like, we have the best bok choy. Like, even simpler things like bok choy, which is like a pretty common vegetable, but not one of the vegetables you see at farmer's markets around here. And I remember one time we brought like 40 perfect bok choy heads to market and we didn't sell a single one. And it was like the most crushing day <laughs> and and so like i think over time we're we're still doing mostly pretty normal stuff uh lettuce tomatoes peppers um what are other normal things we grow <laughs> greens because I mean, yeah. like, i'll say like i i guess i should like say on the radio i'm one of your csa customers like i get right. csa share from you guys every week and i found that it's a good mix of like stuff that I already know how to cook with and then stuff that's like a little different that I have to like think a little harder about how I want to <clears throat> how I want to cook it or like what I might want to get to like beef it up a little you know like it's it's been a fun challenge but I can see that like yeah if, if you're just like going to the farmer's market for the usual you might not think of it the same way does that make sense yeah, yeah. and that's a balance we've been trying to strike ever since we started and like every year we kind of curated a little bit differently based on what we're seeing from our customers like our first year one of our friends was a csa customer and i know this person and i know they're a good cook and that they can use a lot of different vegetables and but I remember the first week of their CSA share, they came to us and they were like, I want you to let you know, I love this so much. I'm so happy with all the food I got. And also I'm so happy I joined the CSA because if I had come to market and seen you guys selling these six things, I wouldn't have bought one of them from you, but I'm glad that I have them all now. And like, it's like, it's a way to encourage people to take that step forward for themselves to like diversify their kitchen a little bit. Um, totally. And, and I think the combination of selling at farmer's markets and having the CSA sort of like helps build trust with customers um so maybe when we yeah. do have the weird things people are a little bit more excited to try it because they know that like we're we're excited about flavor really uh, beyond any other qualities of stuff that we grow we, we grow some really ugly vegetables <laughs> um, and and so like just knowing that like yeah that that 
that people come to us for that reason. I mean, honestly, like, kind of, kind of what you guys are doing in a certain way is like retraining me, us people, to like think differently about what constitutes a good vegetable. Because, like, honestly, like, if you go to the grocery store, you sort of expect to get like the perfect, flawless, like, plump, enormous, juicy eggplant. Like, that's not what they all look like, you know. That's something that I've been really intentional about too. Is that I think. Um, we were talking earlier about like, how do we get to this place where we only have like the big six vegetables? Like we noticed in our first year of farming mm. that at all of the markets we went to that year, we're going to different markets now, so it's not true across the board, but like there were only like six main vegetables sold and customers only wanted those six main vegetables. And, we'd be like, and so when we started there, we were like, oh, this is gonna be so easy. People are only selling these six things, so we'll sell everything else and everyone will come to us because they can't get it anywhere else. And everyone was like, why aren't you selling those six things I came here looking for? Mm -hmm. And um, we see that a lot in just like this expectation of uniformity and homogeneity in everything agricultural and also just like culturally like when you were talking about like scaling up to industrial agricultural size it's not just that like when we're looking at joe's nursery plants here these are all ornamental plants like they're not it's not about scaling this up to the beat that you can ship 16 miles you know 1600 miles away it's this is just a pretty plant but it only grows in this specific area of the world and so the lowe's isn't going to sell this because they can't ship it to every lowe's everywhere and lots of more subtle things too like when you go to target and they have like bedspreads with little succulents on them and now everybody has a succulent in their house when it's like succulents actually sometimes aren't as easy to take care of as people expect and some of these plants that joe's growing are like very easy to grow in this climate because they're acclimated to it but you would never have heard of it because we live on this like global scale culture as opposed to a like region specific culture one thing that's crazy is like how we create these crises and then the solution for these crises that don't really exist. So what do you mean? Well, a big example I'm thinking right now is like the ugly produce boxes that are becoming like a big fad. Yeah. So yeah. and it's like it's essentially a CSA. It's just like what we do. But they're saying like, we're getting all the ugly produce and you're getting that. And so you're like solving the food waste problem and doing all the great things that a CSA does. And as a consumer, a lot of people are really excited about that. They want to be doing something that's like helping solve a problem and getting good food, which is what they're doing with those boxes. But actually, like <laughs> those ugly produce boxes are just buying seconds from large industrial scale agriculture. Like they won't buy small amounts from smaller farmers. Right. So they're only getting from these huge agricultural productions that already have a use for their seconds like when you're at that size all of that goes into like mass-produced canned food and stuff like that like it had a home already you know that's so interesting and also like it's not worth less because it's shaped weird like that's just not <laughs> true so right. like I refuse to be one of those farmers that like sorts out and is like oh this cucumber turned a little wonky on the end like I I sell so, it all at the same price so the, solu the solution there would be to um like sort of on a like a cultural level i guess like retrain people to think more to like to you know like all, all vegetables are beautiful yeah you know yeah and i mean and food waste is food waste is something that's always fascinated me i wrote a bunch of my like term papers in college on food waste and like am really fascinated by the whole way that we waste food and almost all of it happens at the consumer level like 
I, we've all seen that like meme that goes around that's like, I wish I was the person I thought I was when I bought all these vegetables at the farmer's <laughs> yeah. market. And like, yeah. and it's so true. Like I'm a farmer. I do that too. Like we all know, like it's, it can be hard to get through this thing, but like that's where food waste becomes an issue. And then also it becomes an issue when we have these large scale productions where it's not worth the labor to get it out of the field. And like, that's. Wait, 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 hold on. What do you, it's not worth the labor to get it out of the field? So if I go through and harvest all my beans this week and they're peaking, I get a good crop off of them and I sell them for a regular price and make money. But towards the end when they're stopping off producing, there's still plenty of beans out there, but not enough that it makes it worth my labor to go out there and harvest them. Which for me on a really small scale doesn't actually matter and it doesn't really change anything for me and Joe. But when you're hiring like 50 people to go pick beans, there's a day where you'll say stop even though there's still thousands of pounds of beans out there. Because it's not worth it. Because it's not worth it. And it's not worth it. And so that is like the main loss of food in the field. Seconds and things like that that are being sold through these like uh, ugly produce boxes, they're not where you're losing stuff unless it's like it's really is too damaged to properly eat like yeah pepito say hi pepito say hi (laughs) (laughs) and then queso is hiding out probably under a table or somewhere even shadier than here queso where'd you go becca how long have you had these guys uh joe had queso before we met even well i guess actually one of our first dates you gave her a shot because you had just gotten her so yeah She's been around for like five or six years in this family, and then Pepito is just turned three, and we got her as a puppy. So, wait, wait, oh, I forgot. Tell me, um, I want to know about the different what's going on here. I know you mentioned a couple sure. of them, but um, so <laughs> <There's> like four. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Are these oh, you want to talk? Are each, these all different? Each of these pots is a different species. Okay, um, tell me about them. And this is not even, um, this is not even all of them. Um, the the company that I get my pots from uh is out west and um shipping's been an issue issue. none of the east coast distributors sell these pots anymore um which doubles the price of them which is a pain by pots do you mean like literally the pots or what's in them these pots yeah um the seeds (laughs) the seeds i'm mostly um you know with the exception of some of the stuff i have in like larger quantities these these guys that are in um trays um Mm -hmm. all these ones almost all of these I got as little minuscule seed packets from seed exchanges. I belong to, um, let's see, the Seed Savers Exchange, the North American Rock Garden Society, Alpine Garden Society, Scottish Rock Garden Club, Pacific uh, Bulb Society, Pacific Bulb Society, all of which run exchanges where enthusiasts and um, weirdos, yeah, basically, <laughs> pe- people who um, are interested for whatever reason in things that aren't commercially available. Um, grow and swap uh, plant material with other people um, who are growing other weird things that nobody has. Tell her about getting American wildflowers from England. Oh, yeah, so this is a crazy thing. Um, (laughs) There's, I guess, you know, people love exotic stuff, and it's probably pretty obvious that that I'm kind of into that too. Um, But a lot of these plants are native North American plants that nobody in North America grows because they don't you know, think they're pretty enough or, you know, worth worthwhile growing or, you know, maybe they're just a little bit too vigorous here because it's their, their native hunts. Um, but so like um, if you think of like an English cottage garden, a lot of those plants, the, the um, Hellenium, what is that called? Sneezeweed. 
Um, <laughs> Sneeze but, weed? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. That sounds like it's something you'd, something you'd call your little brother when he's five. Probably. It was used as snuff uh, when people <laughs> oh. still did snuff. That makes more sense. Um, but yeah, so like, so in England, there's a whole bunch of different varieties of sneezeweed that people grow. Um, whereas here, there's very few commercially available. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm growing varieties of sneezeweed that were developed from native wildflowers native here across the pond. Yeah. Um, and then brought them back here where nobody else is growing them. So it's just funny that way is it i'm sorry, I'm sorry i have like i just i want to know like we kind of already talked about it but i still feel like is it is it a hobby is it like sort of a philosophical thing like what what drives you to to cultivate specifically like local or like region specific plants that don't like, like they don't feed anybody right there's no like utilitarian use for them right well one phrase we say a lot is conservation through dissemination and so like we were talking earlier about like um the inherent value of things that are endangered or extinct because like we just don't know what that genetic material contains it's a part of a global genetic heritage and we lose that we're right now in the middle of a sixth extinction like we are rapidly losing more and more species every day and we don't even know what they are we don't even fully understand them and so like a lot of the plants that Joe's growing are just really beautiful. A lot of them are medicinal in a way that like people have acknowledged or have uses, but also it's just like, it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater to not try and preserve them while they're here. And just, just cause, um, cause they're cool. Yesterday I was driving home from the farmer's market and um, noticed a mower parked by the side of the road um, along the Clinch river. And there's, um, there's a bunch of species that grow um, along this spot that um, either are rare or in the case of at least one, the, um, the Appalachian bugbane, another name for your little brother, uh, <laughs> is uh, not found anywhere else. Hmm. So it's, a, it's an S1 species, uh, S1 being like critically imperiled. It's like the technical way of saying that. Um, that's not found anywhere else in the state um it kinda like and and the and the mowers had come through and just barely missed cutting off the seed heads um and i picked up seeds from a bunch of other things that were cut off that i'm either you know ripening in bags uh with some plants like i know the north american lily society uh which i hope to be a member of someday when i have the money uh is um people will take unripened seed heads if you know this is a plant that's from a, a place that has a longer growing season they'll take the unripened seed heads and cut them off right before the frost, stick them in a potato to finish ripening them so that hmm. they have a uh, viable seed. That's pretty cool. It kind of like, going back to what you were saying a minute ago, it like, it's giving me like capitalism feelings in the sense that like, we live in a world where our value, and I don't think this is right, but I think it's true that our value often comes from how productive we are. Mm -hmm. um, and in a certain way, like cultivating these plants, even if they don't, as of now, have like a commercial value, it's kind of beautiful. It's kind of like anti-capitalist in a way to put to put energy and attention <laughs> to something that like doesn't. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes us feel a lot better about how little money we make. So thanks for saying <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, that's a lot of it. And also, though, like 
I don't want the takeaway to be like, maybe they don't have any value. Cause I think what we're saying is that, like, they have so much value. Just like intrinsically though, just like in their, just because they exist or because they might have like health value or medicinal value down the road. I mean, I think, I think those are both the same thing. Like one thing that we are learning far too late as a species is that like an ecosystem is many, many, many actions happening and we don't ever comprehend all of them. Like, um, we don't fully understand anything. Like we just don't as, as like a species, we can't fully understand that. And like, but we do know that where there's greater biodiversity, there is a lot happening that is incredibly good for our planet, even though it's happening on a regional scale. Right. And so all of these things that have been kind of ousted from prominence by our own development have a value that we didn't take the time to figure out before we were like, this isn't useful, but they really are doing something. I don't know what it is, but they're all doing something. And, and if we went and sat through every single one of these pots, actually, probably individually, Joe could tell you something magical about each one that you would be like, oh, of course you have that plant. Like, that's so important. <laughs> but we don't have time for that. And <laughs> But it's also like and we... Like, yeah, honestly, like, maybe, maybe this is because I had therapy this morning, but like, <laughs> it's just like, it's just making me feel like, even if you don't know what your own purpose is, there's, it could still be there. You just don't know it yet. Like yeah. the same with these plants. Yeah. It's it, like a metaphor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, the plants, the plants matter. And, but also like, I mean, all plants matter. Sorry. <laughs> but like the... I think another important thing is that like where we live, this is like one of the most biodiverse places in the entire world. This is an incredibly rich spot. Like, and like if we valued ecosystem services the way we do any other service, like central Appalachia would be the wealthiest place in our nation. And it's not. And like, just because like, it's not valuable on, on like a productivity level or like money level doesn't mean that it's not actually like what keeps our world functioning and like we're constantly amazed living here by like how many different plants and like different different insects different wildlife whatever we get to interact with on a daily basis because like it's just we live in a place that is that rich and so I think one thing that also is part of what led us to farming here is that like we kind of met through working in like environmental protection stuff around here. And like, not only is it like, we want to grow all these plants because they have value, but also like we see that this region has often been seen as like this ecosystem is something that needs to be gotten out of the way in order to make like some sort of economy or progress happen. And instead we want to say like, this is like the wealth of this area. Like this is, this is how, rich we are is in plants and it's awesome and like i want to make that more evident and more celebrated should we go look at the raised beds yeah i don't know how long have you guys been been doing this um depends on how you count it um this specific piece of land we this is our third season both of us have been farming for years and years now so but i feel like i don't know it's like Maybe this is just my my own personal background showing, but I feel like there's something brave about going into farming. Did it feel that way to you? 
Um, not at first, and now, yes. Like, it was, um, starting the farm wasn't really that scary at all. Starting the farm, I was taking the winter off from my job. I was working in wilderness therapy, and I was like, oh, I'm not really looking forward to going back. And I was looking through seed catalogs, and I just called Joe, and I was like, what if I just don't go back to my job and we just start a farm together? And he was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. So that didn't feel brave at all. That felt kind of like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job. Um, (laughs) And now, like, we were talking earlier about how hard this season has been. Now, our third season into it, we've sunk all of our life savings, any money we could beg, borrow, or steal, any anything that I ever had access to all of my resources are sunk into this piece of land and I'm so connected to this piece of land after three seasons here that it feels like a part of me like Joe and I were talking the other day and I was like I feel like I couldn't leave if things got bad here and that's really scary because like at this point like I am so tied to this like this is this place has become who I am as a person. Like, you can't sever them. And so now it feels really brave because I'm terrified all the time of what could happen here. And, yeah. and I mean, the future is terrifying, yeah, right? Like, it's a really hard time to be a I, farmer. Uh, and it's a really hard more. time to be a person, I think. Like, there's a definite existential oh. crisis along with climate change and all so of the, like, automatic, major social uh, problems Fogger nozzles that turn on. Coalescing um, this, like, how, how does anyone speak that? Fogger nozzles. Yeah, this is our... Can I go in? Yeah, it's gone insane and it's full of mud, so... Wow, it's really hot in here, you guys. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the fence stopped working when that... That's why it's really hot. That's why we just opened the doors. Um, Okay. So, and this is kind of the triage high tunnel right now, so... What's what's growing in there? Um, Lots of things. Some stuff for Joe's nursery and some vegetable starts that we'll plant out uh what i see right now that i need to get out like immediately is beets and mexican sour gherkins and some peppers and i think there might greens. be a couple more uh eggplant in there eggplant. That we can finish out that row of yeah eggplant. that sort of thing yeah um and then you just got these high tunnels right no these we um this one we built the this was the first one we built this is the first thing we built on the farm that first year and then these three beside it we built that first season throughout the year um if you want to walk down i'll show you where the new big high tunnel is going um this is so cool you guys it's so pretty out here oh thanks it feels it's a really beautiful piece of land and it often feels really disastrous because of um how weedy it is this season so like to me i'm like god these are new seedlings we just started um gosh a couple days ago but it's so hot that they're just germinating instantly cabbage broccoli um Patch, so like I was trying to walk down to where they look really pretty, but you can see them. Oh, I can see them there. That looks like a, I can see an actual squash plant. 
or, uh, squash itself. And these are our melons that have just started to put little baby melons on. Oh, this row of... Where's that coming from? Squash. It's coming from the back Oh, it's coming from... <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's more of them doing that. Yeah. Gosh, those plants are happy. All right. Um, so we we do all open pollinated stuff, and so a lot of that is heirlooms. You know, plants mostly developed before uh, World War II or so. Um, and but there are some people who are doing um, modern open pollinated plant breeding. So um, so this is a trifecta melon, which uh, I think came from a extension service breeding program. You alright, Becca? Oh yeah, I just squash bugs. We um, need to cow and clay all of this. Okay. So this is like I've never seen a squash that looks like that. That's a melon. Oh, it's a melon? I still haven't seen a melon that looks like that either. Yeah. Um, it will taste similar to what you expect a cantaloupe to be. Oh right, these are the Charente melons, mm -hmm. aren't they? Not the trifecta melons. So, like but like what I don't maybe you guys don't know the answer to this, but like why is it that when I'm at the grocery store I can get like cantaloupe honeydew and watermelon and nothing else you know like how did we get there and like why isn't this guy at the grocery store uniformity and like well like joe was saying earlier like there's certain things that scale up really well to um industrial agriculture and to shipping and packaging or certain like okay so that's like too too like fragile or something it might be. I'm, I'm not sure the reason why this melon isn't like that, but also like it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling thing. Like, so you have one guy with the biggest melon farm and he grows this one kind of melon and then everyone expects that one kind of melon. Like we were telling you, like we had these beautiful vegetables that were things that people had probably heard of before, but just weren't used to buying and we couldn't sell them. And like now we're in our third season and people are just starting to be like, Hey, you're those people. Like, they trust us now as yeah. vendors and they're like, willing to try new things from us because they've seen that they are good but it took a it took years to get that kind of yeah acceptance in a market and so like if you're planting out 200 acres or something what do you what do you get to pick you know like do the thing that people know i think like. i think we sold um two bunches of rainbow chard uh the first year oh, the entire first chard. year that we were growing it and now we can't grow enough of it uh, we're doubling our production of it every year, and we just can't keep around enough of it. That's awesome. These are the bits of our high tunnel that we just got, so we can kind of show you what what we're doing there. Yeah, so you see the size of those high tunnels is very small, and then this is the length of the new one. Oh, like, so this is going to be a lot bigger. Yeah, a lot bigger. It's bigger than all the other ones, plus another one of the other ones combined. Okay. We were supposed to get it in January, and then the government shut down, and the farm bill didn't pass, and so it came two weeks ago. So that's why we have like eight foot tall tomatoes that don't have a high tunnel over them. <laughs> Another reason it's been the, the season of disasters, but yeah, we're making do. Yeah, you're starting to come in. But you see how much fruit there is on these. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of tomatoes. Where, uh, yeah. So what's what's going on with the property? Does it what like what direction do you go in? So that driveway that you came in at circled around down here and then curves here, and so that's kind of the property line, okay. essentially there. And then see those tall oak trees up there up on top of that ridge? Yeah. That's like where it ends, pretty much. 
and then there's all these woods back there that go and then if you go through those woods up up the road a little bit there's another big field and yeah there's 20 acres here that's a lot it's a lot yeah are you using most of it no okay. um we are enjoying most of it like we're we have figured out like how we want to interact with most parts of it at this point but it's a long game like the whole thing is yeah. definitely a long plan there's a spring that runs here year-round which is beautiful and That's wonderful awesome. and um joe do you want to talk about what you've been doing in the woods it's sure. so hot here so we could talk yeah let's about go that in a... we can do that in the spring or the woods yeah, let's go into the spring You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Sydney Bowles. You're listening to my interview with Joe Gorman and Becca Holmes, who run Pollinator Produce Partners in Virginia. I just can't get over how, like, wholesome everything is. <laughs> That's us. Wholesome to the core. Yeah, uh, we've, we've noticed... Um, I can show you an example in a second, but, like... Um, we're not getting in some of these record rainfalls that we've gotten. We've gotten as much as 12 inches in a day here in the last wow. year. Um, we're not getting surface runoff. The ground is absorbing all of that because we're very intentionally um, uh, letting deep-rooted perennial plants, you know, some of these are prairie plants that have roots, you know, as deep as they are tall or more. Um, letting them do their thing in the spots where we're worried that, you know, water would be rushing off eroding soil and whatever. And like compared to our uh, neighbor's property, which is like really highly compacted cattle pasture, like you can see how just even like, oh, okay. Well, just like how much, how much water's rushing off. It just washed tons of gravel onto our property. Um, so, but then it, all the water gets absorbed before it even hits the spring. Yeah. I think that's been definitely like the one bright light this year when it's been like such a hard year production wise is like seeing all these things that we put in place like over the last couple of years really reshape like how the land works or like we've been noticing a lot of different like bird species or insect species and things like that that are coming back to the land now which is like yeah and very and rewarding. like and and even um birds we'd never seen here in the almost four years we've been living here that you would expect to see here like red-winged blackbirds mm. um just because there's not not enough going on um ecology-wise, to, to really keep them in place. That's really good to hear. I don't know, it's like, it, it, it's, proof, it's proof to me that there's, that like, time, <clears throat> given, given the right conditions, time is long enough that uh, things can self-correct. Yeah, and, um, where we're walking to now is like, I think my, my favorite example of that, where, um, you know, we, we recognized that this was a really cool spot um, as soon as we moved here uh, in the fall, but in the spring, there were no wildflowers that came up when 
you know, in, in a lot of other places around us, if you find a place with this sort of soil, um, with this sort of slope, um, you know, with, with a, a ephemeral stream running through it, that you would find a lot of wildflowers in between, um, oh gosh, between, um, us removing some invasive species. What kind of bird is that? Is that a... I think it's just a cardinal. It's just a cardinal? I'm not sure though. Let's take a look. Um, you know, our dog's helping chase off the deer a little bit. Um, and just, you know, very minimal interventions over the course of the last three years. Things have started popping up and, and, um, that, that, you know, are, uh, pretty rare. There's, um, there's this one plant called Virginia snake root, which, um, uh, is listed as like an imperiled plant by United Plant Savers, um, because, you know, it's, it's overcollected. It's something that sells for a couple hundred dollars a pound as a, as a root, hmm. you know, just as, as medicine. Um, but it grows here now. It wasn't here a couple years ago, so that's really cool. Yeah. It's mushy there. Yeah. I found a spring. Yeah. <laughs> you might get wet if you go much further, which I'm going to get in because I'm hot, but... Yeah. Me too. Going to try not to get your microphone wet. Please don't. Um, but yeah, even, uh, I guess, is an example of how the hydrology is here. Um, you can see these... <laughs> these plants that got washed up up to like neck height here um, when when the spring had to to channel all that water I'm taking um, my shoes up and getting in yeah it's yeah, taking me a long time to get these back on I don't really care that much yeah this runs cold. 55 degrees year round it's great. My feet are numb already. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my favorite places on the farm too because it was like the treasure we got to discover the longer we were here. When we first... Oh, it's so cold! Sorry! <laughs> <laughs> when we first heard about this piece of land, um, our landlady Lisa was like, why don't you come out here and see if it might work as a farm for you guys? And so she brought us here and no one had lived here in like the last year or used the land really. And so everything was overgrown. We were walking through like neck high grasses and stuff in all of the fields. But she was like, there's a spring on the property. I really want to show you. And we walked around for like an hour and couldn't really find the spring and eventually found like a gate. And she was like, I think this gate that's like shut by weeds, like you can't open it is like leads to the spring a little bit. And so like, over the last three years while we've been here, at first we only found like this down um, part of the spring. Like it took us a good six months to find the head of the spring, which is where we are right now. And then like over the time that we've been here, we slowly like just kind of hacked away and carved out like a little pathway down here and figured out like how to be down by it in a way. And Joe started planting out a bunch of rare Sino-Siberian orchids along the side, or irises. irises I'm sorry, I just feel like every single plant that you name is like a killer band name. 
That would probably be true. I invite anyone to please form the Sarno Siberian Irises and then come play at a music festival at the farm. That'd be great. We'd love that. I would go to a music festival right here <laughs> in this stream. Yeah. <laughs> my feet are so cold right now. Yeah, we can oh get out. God. You don't have to stay. <laughs> um, it's like I want to love it because it's so hot out, but also my feet are really cold. It's a little, it's a little much. Yeah, it's a good. The watercress is springing back faster than I thought it would. You can see where it got kind of scoured out is over there. Your, is this where you harvest the watercress that I got in the CSA last week? Yep. Wow, that's amazing. Oh. Like this is the point of the year where I hate farming. This is like, like right now is the time of year where I'm like, why do I do this? I should go get a nine to five. Yeah. I could have gone to law school. What am I doing with my life? Yeah. It's and, um, it's so stressful when. You know, so we're like, we're at a couple different junctions. Um, like, uh, uh, this is the time when the like spring crops are all dying and not producing anymore, and the summer crops are like coming just in, just starting. And it's like, what's gonna happen the next two weeks? Mm. Um, and if you time it just right, it's fine. But this season, nothing. And it's also right. the exact same time that we have to start all the fall crops. So there's a lot going on. So we're doing a lot of work. Without, without really seeing a whole lot of reward. And it's the hottest time, so it's, it's the, the hardest to be time. outside. And it's the time when, like, uh, just like this is the mid, it's, it's the hump point, you know? Like, yeah. in, um, in the fall, it's like the temperatures are cooling off, and I'm like, oh, I hate the idea that winter is coming. I have to relish every moment spent outside. And in spring, it's like, God, winter was so awful. I'm so happy to be out here. This is so whimsical and wonderful. And right now, I'm like, I hate farming. I hate farming. I hate farming. But I don't. I love it. Yeah. Gosh, this is the first year I've actually gotten a mower up to it and like actually made more, I thought, permanent paths. Pretty much every time I go out, I find a new um, species of plant in the woods that I haven't seen here before. Um, uh, and oftentimes they're like indicator plants that are like, hey, this is what sort of, you know, before this got uh, overgrown with invasive privet or whatever, you know, this is what kind of ecosystem was here. And I'm like, oh, that's different than I thought. I guess I have to change how I think about this place. All right, duck under this poison ivy and then we're there. <laughs> so this spot. Um, magic color. Yeah. What um, makes it magical? Oh boy. Well, the, the, um, I guess one of the first things that happened here is, um, our friend Carol Judy, um, brought us like a five gallon plastic bucket full of moss and roots. And, um, we, uh, golden seal, which, you know, is sort of her signature plant. And, uh, we planted some of it out here. Um, and it's just taken off and, um, this has been sort of a place we've put other, uh, rescued plants. We bought some, um, oh, what did we get? We got we cohosh got, um, from the Appalachian pipeline rescue. Mm -hmm. We got ramps from, not from an organization, but from people rescuing it from the, the path of the, of the, um, natural gas pipeline. Christened it Magic Holler really before any of that happened. 
because when we were first looking around the property and starting to learn like these woods and what they were about, we realized this would be the area where most like really potent medicinals would grow really well. Like for the, the growing conditions here are right for a lot of things we were interested in trying. And that has proven true. We've planted a lot of stuff out here that's doing really, really well and growing beautifully. But also one thing that's been, when I was talking about like species coming back and stuff, one thing that's been really cool is the amount of awesome flowers and medicinal species that have just popped up in this area after it, we were just here for one season we planted out like maybe two things we didn't disturb anything i think the main thing was that our dogs live here now and scared the deer off from overgrazing these like naturally occurring plants and now we just have like this very very rich um area with a lot of really cool medicinals growing here hmm. and so that's why it's it's the magic holiday help too i think they live up here somewhere what did the coyotes. Yeah, that'll do it. Um, I mean, it, it's a little cooler here now, so maybe this is a good time to talk about this too. But when we were off mic before, um, Becca, you mentioned how like everything has sort of gone wrong this summer, that it's been really challenging this summer. Um, and that to you it felt like it was partly about climate change. And I wonder now if we're in somewhere that's a little bit cooler than right out in the sunlight, we could talk a little bit more about what that's like walk me through that whole story like how how has your relationship to climate change changed as you've been farming oh man that's interesting because I feel like my relationship to climate change is what brought me to farming actually like I um I can't remember a time when I did not was not filled with existential terror about the fate of like our planet uh, <laughs> I think like even before it was like nationally like a really big topic like I remember as like a nine-year-old kid being like thumbs up like I was I just was felt like very overwhelmingly with concern about these sorts of things and I've been like personally like invested in climate change and researching what's happening to our planet from like the late 90s I was really invested in that and so um I in the entirety of time where someone might ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? My goals were like, I want to do something to impact what's happening to our planet. I want to try to fix these things. I want to try to correct these wrongs. And I've done a lot of different things in pursuit of that goal. But as I continued like down that path, I think what I realized, like where my gifts coalesce with like what I feel most passionate about is is like farming is the way that I know how to like fight this and also how to stay sane in a world that is dying like one thing that's really important to me is I believe like again going back to that like what's the value of these plants question I deeply believe in like the healing power of the natural world and the healing power of like a healthy ecosystem which is not to say like like I'm not one of those people that's going to be like don't take your pills go for a walk like no absolutely not but going for a walk in the woods has always made me feel better and having my hands in the dirt has always made me feel better and um, I used to work in wilderness therapy which is something I'm really passionate about in a lot of ways and I really I'm currently in grad school studying to be a therapist and I hope to one day open the farm up to be like an agricultural therapy place like that's long-term goals for me because like I think in healing our relationship with the land we can also heal ourselves I think those two things are necessary and mutually occurring things but 
even as all of that is happening, you're seeing, even as you're putting so much love and attention and intention into this land, <laughs> the land is being changed by these big forces. Definitely. Um, this is this is the hottest year on record for where we are and the wettest year on record. And the year before that was also the hottest and wettest year on Like, I have never farmed a season that wasn't a record year. Like, that's always been true. And for the most part, I haven't seen that come out in, like, what I was able to produce in my gardens until this year was the year that it was really, I think, um, we've just gotten so much rain here that it's been almost impossible to, to do things the way that we do them. Like, we don't... Um, use a lot of large-scale tractors. We do everything by hand and um, do a lot of field work and keeping our soil in really good quality is super important to us. And so like working when the soil is wet can damage your soil for years. Like, And so you have to be very cautious about like what, what level of moisture is in your soil when you're doing different things. And we've been really unable to do a lot of the stuff that's just really important for maintaining our crops this season. I feel... I feel lucky because I feel like um, one thing I say a lot is the plants know what they're doing and they do and we're still getting, it's not like we're destitute, but it's like, wow, this is not the level of abundance that I normally expect from my gardens and this is not the level of like upkeep that I normally give to my gardens because I'm just not capable right now. And um, that's been really demoralizing and disheartening for both of us, I think, like hard to stay focused with that going on. I mean, like... I don't know. This is, I don't want to go, maybe I do, maybe we're just going dark. Like, projecting that forward is really scary. Yes. Like, we're, we're looking at, um, I mean, this, this year has made us seriously consider, <coughs> you know, we, one thing I think that sets us apart from a lot of uh, small scale organic farms even around here is like, we, we really try not to use plastic everywhere you know you go to an organic farm they're not using herbicides they're using plastic mulch um and you know that um uh, it's just money spent and waste that we don't that we we really don't want to do it doesn't it doesn't feel right for us right um and so like this year has made us consider uh, for the first time like switching a hundred percent over to protected culture growing everything inside high tunnels and we're looking at like sort of synthesizing a couple different pieces of like low-tech um, ways of growing um, that can like help us stay cool in the summer help us you know extend our seasons longer without using um, you know a lot of fuel <laughs> but I just, I, I mean, I just can't believe for myself that I'd ever be thinking about that. Like, you know, growing stuff in the field really does feel like the, the best way to do it in terms of like soil ecology and biodiversity. Um, it's just not realistic in the climate we live in anymore. Yeah. And um, well. one, of, one of the things that, that um, has been changing is like shorter springs and longer falls. Um, so... Um, the first year we were here, we were like, yay, we've got, you know, uh, we'd started our garden the previous year very late um, in the year due to uh, this landlord long story. But um, we, um, we were like, great, we finally get to grow spinach. And we planted the spinach 
and it, you know, the crop was ready and we had, what, one week of harvest out of it before it bolted because it got so hot. Hmm. Um, and we just, I think this spring we might have been able to get a couple weeks out of it if, we'd, if we had done it, but, but we, we didn't try it. <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, it's unpredictable like that. Uh, I mean, so climate change models for this specific part of the country suggest that it's not, we're not gonna get tremendously hotter. We are gonna get progressively hotter, but not tremendously. Mm -hmm. We're gonna get more rainfall and it's gonna be in short, intense bursts. Project out, I don't, like I know this isn't like what you guys do, but just how do you think about like, you are so invested in this land, like what do you think, like, I, I, I don't know, I can't think 10 years into the future in my own life, but five years from now, 10 years from now, how does that change farming here? Well, so we've kind of went into farming with that, like, understanding, like, everything is going to massively change. It's been a lot more emotionally wrenching to actually see the impact of those changes this year. But, like, we have been planning for that to happen all along. Like, we've, we didn't come into this blind and now we're like, oh, God, what's happening? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like oh, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> but um, so everything we've thought about has like when we've made like 10, 20 year plans, which we have sat down and talked about like what we want the farm to look like. We're like, you know, <laughs> Joe particularly loves the idea of like pushing the envelope of what you can grow, like what's hardy here. And um, he's pushed it a lot in certain ways because he's like, hey, in five years, I won't have to push it. Like it'll just be hardy here, you know, and like that's something we think about a lot. Like We've talked a lot about um, growing a lot of tropical fruits that we have ideas about how we could breed them to be, like, workable in this climate. And, you know, you were saying earlier, like, it's not feasible to grow on, without plastic culture here. And that's not necessarily true. It's not feasible to grow the same crops the same way. And so, again, when we were talking about, like, that needing to, like, move the market from expecting these, like, eight things that everyone knows and expects, there's something there, too. Like, I can grow... You can grow anything, you can grow stuff anywhere is what I mean. You can grow stuff anywhere, but do the people want it? And that's something we've struggled with a lot too, is I think that we are always going back and forth about like feeling this huge obligation to serve the land, like sometimes even before we serve like the customer, like, you know, like it's about stewarding this piece of land and like really prizing what an incredible area we live in. Like we live in the most incredible, I just get too rambly when I start talking about how great it is but like um and so like to that end it's like we want very much to be like taking care of the land the best way possible and doing things that aren't like a lot of our agricultural problems a lot of our climate change problems are caused by the fact that we use agricultural practices that exhaust our land instead of replenish it and so like that's what we're trying like we're trying to grow food in a way that doesn't do that which often means that we don't bring the product that the end consumer is like expecting because we are saying maybe this grows better here in the spring like uh you know we've, we have never had a good spinach crop in the spring we always have a great bok choy crop and a lot of people don't really like bok choy and we're like learn to like bok choy it's the future <laughs> like it's gonna be here you know like that sort of thing is um is a big part for us so I think kind of showing showing people that we need to be accepting of new things and different things and like a little bit like it is terrifying. Climate change is terrifying, but I also think there's a part of it that's like, you have to just like be brave to like 
be like, there's a new normal and we have to like adjust to it because it's going to be our new normal and like figuring that out. So like building resilience into the farm has been a part of the design plan from the beginning. Guys, we'll be going at this for one hour and 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Should we, should we head back? Yeah, let's go back. Okay. Okay. Let me show you a thing real quick. Okay. Back up, back up, back up. Okay. Look, our ramps are setting siege. <laughs> there's one. There's ah! another one. There's one. When look, do you think they'll be all harvestable? All the way down there. Uh, when they turn black, probably another month or two. Okay. Just look at that whole patch of them. Jesus Christ. These are the, oh, the ones so we, um, good. that were rescued from the path of the pipeline. It's really exciting. Um, and our, our ginseng has, not ginseng, our golden, golden seal. seal has berries on it for the first time. Our ginseng we just planted, uh, what, two years ago? So it's going to be- One year ago. We just planted it last year. Last year? Okay. Um, all right, let's head back. You have been listening to an interview with Becca and Joe, proprietors of Pollinators Produce Partners in Duffield, Virginia. WMMT reporter Sydney Bowles produced this show. We finish out with a short report from Kentucky News Connect. A pilot program in Berea where women in recovery learn job skills through farming saw its first batch of graduates this month. The program's director, Cheyenne Olson, says many people might be surprised by how much planting and harvesting translates to other types of work. There's an incredible amount of job skill learning that takes place on the Berea urban farm. Harvesting Hope is a partnership between Sustainable Berea and Liberty Place, a recovery center for women in Richmond, along with several local businesses. The 26 graduates were paid for their work on the Berea Urban Farm, in addition to receiving training in financial literacy, job interviews, and building a resume. Kentucky has one of the lowest workforce participation rates in the country, according to a 2017 report by the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce. Olson points out that while the opioid epidemic has made it difficult for many employers to fill available jobs. Communities haven't put effort into helping people transition from sobriety into employment. And we also want to develop a model program that can be adopted by other communities who are seeking to do job skills programs. She also says no job skills program is going to work without addressing personal trauma and self-worth. And unless they're able to have some way to heal personally and spiritually, all of the job skills in the world are not going to help them. If you don't have that peace, I don't think it works. And we didn't know that when we were going into this. We did not know we were going to be dealing with the, the personal issues. The state's Injury and Research Prevention Center has launched a website aimed at helping families and individuals find real-time information about patient openings at treatment programs across Kentucky. Visit findhelpnowky.org for more information. For Public News Service, I'm Nadia Ramladan. This and other stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities can be found at the Making Connections News website and podcast. Thank you for listening.